Now we give you a very warm welcome to our service this evening, even though it's quite chilly outside. It's nice to see those that have struggled out, and I'm sure we'll be blessed by being here this evening. For our opening hymn, we'll sing hymn number 243, 243, O for a thousand tongues to sing, my great Redeemer's praise, the glories of my God and King, the triumphs of his grace. After the introduction, we'll stand and sing the whole four verses.
now we'll just ask for God's blessing upon us this evening. Father, we just come before you this evening. We give thanks for this time that we can spend together. We give thanks for the fact that we can open your word and study it. Father, we just ask a blessing upon us this evening that we might learn something of your word. That we might learn something from it. We ask a blessing upon Fraser as he would bring your message to us. And we ask that we might learn something from it. We ask all of this in the name of your Son, the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. Now just a, a couple of dates for your diary. Next um, a week on Sunday at 2.30 in the afternoon we have a carol service in Duffy Park. And it would be great to see as many as possible there. And on Christmas Eve on the 24th of December we have a Christmas Eve service at 4.30. Now our speaker this evening is Fraser Monroe and we're very pleased to have him. And after the next hymn I'll hand over to him. Our next hymn is number 896. 896. I will sing of my Redeemer and his wondrous love to me. On the cruel cross he suffered, from the curse he set me free. Sing, O sing of my Redeemer, with his blood he purchased me. Again, after the introduction, we'll stand and sing the whole hymn. 896. Oh. 
number of verses to read with you tonight and the first few are found in Matthew chapter 10 (coughs) Matthew's gospel and chapter 10 Matthew 10 and verse 26 fear them not therefore down to verse 28 fear not them which kill the body but are not able to kill the soul down to verse 31 fear ye not therefore ye are of more value than many sparrows over to Matthew 14 Matthew 14 and verse 27 but straightway Jesus spake unto them saying be of good cheer it is I be not afraid chapter 17 and verse 7 chapter 17 and verse 7 and Jesus came and touched them and said arise and be not afraid chapter 28 and verse 10 Matthew 28 and verse 10 then said Jesus unto them be not afraid go tell my brethren that they go into Galilee and there shall they see me Now into Mark's Gospel for a verse, Mark chapter 5. Mark 5 and verse 36. As soon as Jesus heard the word that was spoken, he saith unto the ruler of the synagogue, Be not afraid, only believe. Into Luke's Gospel, and again it's chapter 5. Luke chapter 5. Luke 5 and verse 10, the middle of verse 10. And Jesus said unto Simon, Fear not, from henceforth thou shalt catch men. Chapter 12. Luke chapter 12 and verse 32. Fear not, little flock, for it is your father's good pleasure to give you the kingdom. Now a verse from Acts chapter 18. The Acts of the Apostles in chapter 18. Acts chapter 18 and verse 9. Then spake the Lord to Paul in the night by a vision, Be not afraid, but speak, and hold not thy peace. And then a final verse, and it's in Revelation chapter 1. Revelation chapter 1 and verse 17. And when I saw him, I fell at his feet as dead, and he laid his right hand upon me, saying unto me, Fear not, I am the first and the last. What's the link? Well, we've read verses, and they're all from the New Testament, but more than that. We've read verses, and in all of them are words spoken by the Lord Jesus. And so if you have a red letter 
Bible, some of these words appear in red, even those ones in Acts and Revelation chapter 1. But more than that, and I'm sure you've seen it, in each of these 11 texts, we have the instruction, fear not, or we have the intimation, be not afraid. If you take the time to look at the Greek, you'll discover that exactly the same words are used on each single occasion. And so this list is consistent. Be not afraid can be translated fear not. Fear not can be translated be not afraid. And so the list is consistent. And then the list is is, is comprehensive. These are, I think, all the occasions on which the Lord Jesus uttered these words. And that means that this list is complete. Just two weeks ago I was speaking in Ayrshire and on that occasion I spoke on the, the recorded prayers of the Lord Jesus and I found nine of them. And they're surely worth studying. Nine occasions when the Son prayed to the Father and his words are recorded. Well, tonight we have the 11 recorded occasions when the Lord Jesus spoke to his followers and encouraged them to fear not. And surely they are worth studying as well. You know, we're approaching Christmas. If you read in the early part of Matthew and if you read in the early part of Luke you'll discover that these words were also spoken by an angel. The Old Testament era comes to an end. The years pass, the decades pass, the centuries pass. And then you know the story, a heavenly appearance to Zacharias, a heavenly appearance and a heavenly announcement. And we ask ourselves, what will be the first words spoken after this long, long length of time? It's these words, fear not. And that was the message to Zacharias. And that was the message to Mary and that was the message to Joseph and that was the message to the shepherds wonderful that the angel should so speak but even more wonderful that the Lord Jesus should so speak speak on 11 occasions and speaking on these 11 occasions give us 11 reasons why we should not fear you know some have said that there are 365 fear nots in the Bible Others tell us that there are far fewer than that. But before us tonight, we've got the the fear knots of the Lord Jesus. And each one of them, as we'll discover, is so very, very precious. Now, chronologically, the first would be in Luke 5. Luke 5, the story of Simon Peter. You know the background, don't you? John 1 is Peter's call in salvation. Here in Luke 5, it's Peter's call in service. Here in Luke 5, out a little from the land, verse 3, the Lord Jesus teaches the people. And then out into the deep, the Lord Jesus teaches Peter himself. And that setting would be so significant. Look at what the Lord Jesus says in verse 4. Luke 5, verse 4. The Lord Jesus says, let down your Nets for a draught. Launch out into the deep and let down your nets for a draught. And I want you to know in in, in this connection, I want you to notice Peter's scepticism. Peter's scepticism. End of verse 5. At thy word I will let down the net. You might say his scepticism. And I say yes. You might say to me, should it not be his submission? And I say to you, no. You see, the Saviour said, nets, plural, let down your nets for a draft. But this sailor says, net, singular. 
You see, Peter's general experience would tell him that no fish will be caught. It's the wrong period of the day, it's the wrong place in the lake. And then Peter's recent experience will tell him that no fish will be caught, for they've just toiled all night and have taken nothing, not one single fish. But it seems that as a concession to Christ, I'll let down a net. I'll let down a net. Token compliance. And then look at verse 6. And when, says verse 6, they had this done, they enclosed a great multitude of fishes. If you look back at verse 1, we've got a picture of a multitude. A multitude of folk on the shore pressing upon him. And now in verse 6, another multitude, this time it's a multitude of fish in the sea, pressing into the net. And so, do you follow the story? We've got a depiction of Peter's scepticism that then leads verse 8 to a declaration of Peter's sinfulness, falls down at Jesus' knees and says, Depart from me, I am a sinful man, O Lord. A net that is beginning to break. Ships that are beginning to sink. Such was the, the magnitude of the miracle. In verse 5, Peter had addressed him as master. Now in verse 8, Peter addresses him as Lord. Do you see the development? This carpenter from Nazareth is the very creator, is the very controller of all things. And the more Peter understands who Christ is, the sovereign, the more Peter understands who he is, verse 8, he's a sinful man. And so Peter says, depart from me, I am useless. But in response, verse 10, Christ says, no, you are useful, you are useful. This is Isaiah 6, all over again, isn't it? Remember, the prophet's confession, woe is me for I am undone. Then his cleansing, then his call. Peter says, I am useless. Christ says, you are useful. Fear not, verse 10, from henceforth thou shalt catch men. Some of you might remember my grandfather, Alec Munro, and I have some of his books and I have some of his notes that he took at, at meetings and conferences, and it's good to have them. Some of you might also remember my father, Ian Munro, and I have a Bible that belonged to him, and it's good to, to have that. And the interesting thing is, the only thing that he has written in that Bible is one word beside our verse, Luke 5, verse 10. Fear not, from henceforth thou shalt catch men, and in that Bible is written, alive, alive. And that's the meaning of the word. Found only twice in the New Testament. Found here in Luke 5 and found across in 2 Timothy 2. In 2 Timothy 2, it's the, it's the, the pursuit of Satan. Men are taken captive by him at his will. But here in Luke 5, it's the promise to Simon. Thou shalt catch men alive. Now his boat is overflowing, overloaded, overwhelmed with fish. In terms of material things, there's never been a day like this. Peter has never had it so good. But what is the material compared to the spiritual? 
What are fish compared to men? What are the dead compared to the living? And so we've got in this story the the depiction of Peter's scepticism, I'll let down the net, that leads to the declaration of Peter's sinfulness, I am a sinful man, O Lord, that then leads to the description of Peter's surrender. End of verse 11. Forsook all and followed him. Followed him with the promise of catching men alive. Catching men alive. Luke writes this story. And then Luke writes in the Acts of the Apostles. Acts 2. Peter lets down the nets. And Jews in Jerusalem are brought to Christ. Acts 10, Peter lets down the nets and Gentiles in Caesarea are brought to Christ. Luke 5, can we call this the privilege of service? The privilege of service. Owning the the Lordship of Christ. His loftiness. Our lowliness. Peter discovered on Galilee that day that there could be only one captain in his boat. There could be only one captain in his life. He confessed him as Lord. He conveyed to him his life. And it's such a servant that God can greatly use. Luke 5, the privilege of service. And then if if we go from Luke 5 to to Mark 5, and it's the story of Jairus. And if you read the story of Jairus that's found in, in these verses, you'll see that he's repeatedly described as the ruler of the synagogue. The ruler of the synagogue. And the purpose in so describing him as the ruler of the synagogue is to emphasize not so much the importance of that position, rather to to demonstrate the inadequacy of that position. And so Jairus turns from Judaism and he turns to Christ, he turns to the Lord Jesus. He comes to him, he falls before him. Matthew will tell you that he actually worshipped him. And so we've got the the inadequacy of his position, ruler of the synagogue he may be, but he's in a situation that he cannot resolve. The inadequacy of his position, and then we've got the immensity of his problem. My little daughter, verse 23, lieth at the point of death, and we've got the intensity of his petition. Verse 23, besought him greatly, I pray thee. We've got a man experiencing a distressing trial. But we've got a man exhibiting delightful trust. For he says, verse 23, Come, and she shall live. Here in Mark, Mark tells us, verse 24, Jesus went with him. Matthew will tell you that Jesus followed him. It's as if Jairus takes the lead. He proved the reality of what he said by what he did. And then we have verse 25 the story within the story the woman with the issue of blood in one sense it's an interruption precious time elapses in another sense it's an intimation to Jairus precious truths are enforced his daughter 12 years old the woman's condition 12 years old his daughter in extremity this woman in extremity nothing better but rather grew worse She's healed. And because she is healed, Jairus should be helped. There should be that confirmation to him that the Lord Jesus is indeed the great physician. And then if you look at verses 34 and 35 and 36, you'll see that these three verses run into each other. While the master 
is announcing her healing. Verse 35. Messengers arrive. Thy daughter is dead. Why troublest thou the master any further? And then as soon as that is heard by the Lord Jesus. Jesus says to the ruler. Be not afraid only believe. Be not afraid keep on believing. What he's saying to Jairus is this. You exhibited initial faith. Exhibit continual faith. The more you have faith, the less you will have fear. Do you see that? Now put yourself in Jairus' position at, 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 at this stage. And then when you come to verse 28, 29 and 40. Put yourself in Jairus' position. There are those who dismiss Christ. Why troublest thou the master? And then there, there are those who deride Christ. They laughed him to scorn. And so do you see that this man is surrounded by sceptics. Surrounded by sceptics. But it's clear that he continues to believe. And his trust in Christ triumphs. Look at verse 41. Note the affection that Christ shows. He holds her hand. He says he calls her damsel. Little lamb. The affection he shows. And then note the ability that he shows. Arise. Arise. Her spirit returns. Her life is restored. Graham Scroge says. Mockers do not see miracles. Favour is extended here to faith. Favour is extended here to faith. What's the lesson here? Surely it's this. The, 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 the profit. The profitability of supplication. In your distress, in your difficulty, come to him in prayer. At the feet of Christ, where Jairus came. At the feet of Christ is a most profitable place to be. Come to him in prayer and continue in prayer. Keep on praying and keep on believing. Keep on believing. And then if we go from Mark 5 to those three verses in Matthew 10. In Matthew 10. I was looking at Bullinger's companion Bible and Mr. Bullinger who loves to see order structure he sees order he sees structure here and so Mr. Bullinger says in verses 24 and 25 you have encouragement and then you have the fear not verse 26 and then in verse 27 you've got encouragement and then you've got the fear not verse 28 and then you've got encouragement in verses 29 and 30 and then you've got the fear not verse 31. And then says Mr. Bullinger, you've got the encouragement of verses 32 and 33. But look back at verse 16. The Lord Jesus speaks. Speaks to his disciples. He says, behold, I send you forth. Behold, I send you forth. What a dignity. Servants of Christ. Having the opportunity of being engaged in business for the master. What a dignity. But the Lord Jesus continues. Behold I send you forth as sheep in the midst of wolves. Not only what a, a dignity but what a danger. And in the next few verses the Lord Jesus will speak about their being delivered up. Verse 17. Scourged. Verse 17. Brought before governors and kings. Verse 18. He'll speak about them. Verse 21. Being put to death. Such, says the Lord Jesus, might happen to them. And is it not touching for us just to contemplate that all these things actually happened to him? And then verse 25. Enough for the disciple to be as his master and the servant as his 
Lord. Verse 26, fear them not, therefore. What can we call this? Is the, this is the pattern for suffering. The pattern for suffering. What does the hymn writer say? It is the way the master went. Should not the servant tread it still? Verse 26, fear them not, therefore, the pattern for suffering. And then look at verse 28. And fear not them which kill the body. The power of man extends far, but only so far. The power of man can touch the body, but can't touch the soul. The power of man can operate on earth, but the power of man cannot operate in hell. Remember Acts 7, the end of Acts 7. Men stoned Stephen. They killed his body, but they could do no more. And do you remember his prayer? Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. And you know, it's as if we can almost hear Stephen singing. Be hushed, my sad spirit. The worst that can come, but shortens the journey and hastens me home. And so the Lord Jesus says, verse 28, fear not. Fear not wicked men, for wicked men are but weak men. They have power over the body, but they have no jurisdiction over the soul. They have power over physical life, but they have no jurisdiction over spiritual life, over eternal life. The powerlessness, the powerlessness of sinners, says Luke in this connection. After death, there is no more that they can do. After death, there is no more that they can do. And then look at verse 29, where the Lord Jesus then begins to speak about sparrows, sparrows. He says two sparrows sold for a farthing. Luke 12 will tell us that two farthings will buy you not four, as you might expect, but five. You get an extra one thrown in free. And yet one of them, one of them, either one of the two or one of the five, or even the fifth one that you've been given free. One of them is not forgotten before God. That's Luke 12. Not one of them shall not fall on the ground without your father. The sparrow, a bird so common. Millions, tens of millions of them scattered all over the, the world. A bird so common, a bird so cheap, virtually worthless. And yet the Lord Jesus is teaching his disciples a bird for which God cares. God cares. And he says, one of them shall not fall on the ground without your father. What does that mean? It means so much. One of them shall not fall on the ground without your father's perception. He sees, he sees it. One of them shall not fall on the ground without your father's providence. He feeds it. One of them shall not fall on the ground without your father's pity. It's been said that God attends the funeral of every fallen sparrow. One of them shall not fall on the ground without your father's purpose. He must permit anything and everything that happens even to a worthless sparrow. Some of you might know the story. Early in the spring of 1905, uh, a minister and his wife spent time in New York and spending time in New York they became friends with a Christian couple. The lady had been bedridden for almost 20 years and the husband himself was a cripple who required to use a wheelchair and yet in, in spite of all that, in spite of all that, they lived happy lives, 
happy Christian lives. One day when the, missionary, when, the, when the minister and his wife were visiting this couple, the, the, the minister commented on their bright spirits and asked what the secret was. The lady, this bedridden lady, replied, his eye, his eye is on the sparrow and I know he watches me. And that inspiring comment inspired the, minister, uh, the minister's wife to pen the hymn, Why should I feel discouraged? Why should the shadows come? Why should my heart be lonely and long for heaven and home when Jesus is my portion? My constant friend is he, his eyes on the sparrow, and I know he watches me. Let not your heart be troubled. His tender word I hear, and resting on his goodness I lose my doubt and fear. Though by the path he leadeth, but one step I may see, his eyes on the sparrow, and I know he watches me. Whenever I am tempted... Whenever clouds arise, when song gives place to sighing and hope within me dies, I draw the closer to him. From care he sets me free, his eyes on the sparrow, and I know he watches me. And the Lord Jesus says, verse 31 of Matthew 10, Fear ye not therefore, more value, many sparrows, and we can write beside this one the preciousness of the saints, the preciousness of the saints. Now there are links between Matthew 10 and Luke 12 and then further down Luke 12 there's another fear not that we read. Luke 12 and verse 32 Fear not little flock for it is your father's good pleasure to give you the kingdom. Earlier in this very chapter there is that parable that solemn that sad that solemn story of the rich farmer That story of prosperity and then poverty. That man who died, died with his harvest ungathered, died with his barns unbuilt, and died with his soul unsaved. That man who thought he had everything, much goods, many years, but he enters eternity with nothing. And so earlier in the chapter we've got a parable. And then earlier in the chapter we've got this principle. Verse 23 The life is more than meat, the body more than raiment. A parable and then a principle and then a picture. The Lord Jesus says, verse 24, consider the ravens. Verse 27, consider the lilies. The point he makes is this, God feeds the fowls. How much more are ye better than they? Verse 27, God clothes the flowers. How much more will he clothe you? And so we've got a parable and then a principle. And then a picture, and then we've got a precept. Seek ye the kingdom, verse 31. Seek ye the kingdom of God. A precept, and then this promise, verse 32. It is your father's good pleasure to give you the kingdom. Now, it's lovely that earlier in the chapter, he addresses them as friends. He addresses them as friends. Now he addresses them as little flock. When we hear these words, little flock, we are reminded that we're not that he is the shepherd. He's the good shepherd who would give his life for them. And when we hear his words, kingdom, the kingdom, we're reminded that he is the sovereign, a sovereign who will give his kingdom to them. A shepherd who will give his life for them, a sovereign who will give his kingdom to them. Says Bullinger again, the king was present 
What could he not supply? The king was present. What could he not supply? The Lord Jesus, in these verses, is speaking about fear. And he says, you know, fear, fear, is, fear is useless. You can't add, verse 25, a cubit to your stature. He says, fear is needless. All these things, verse 31, will be added unto you. And now he's saying, fear is pointless. For it's the Father's good pleasure. It's the Father's purpose. It's the Father's plan for you to give you the kingdom. Fear not because of the purposes of the sovereign. The purposes of the sovereign. The purposes of the sovereign for this little flock. The little flock today have a hymn book. Hymns for the little flock. The little flock today, elders and examples in it. The little flock today, there can be enemies that come against it. But the little flock will have a kingdom tomorrow. The little flock will have a kingdom tomorrow. Luke 12, the purposes of the sovereign. And then, if you turn back from Luke 12 to Matthew 14. (coughs) Matthew 14. And if you look at the word in verse 22 you'll see that Jesus constrained his disciples. Jesus constrained his disciples. Does that infer, I think it does, does that infer some reluctance on their part? Reluctant to go without him and reluctant to go so late. So notice his purpose for them. He wanted them to go into the ship. And then note his pathway to them. Verse 25. In the fourth watch of the night, Jesus went unto them. Jesus went unto them, walking on the sea. The hour is late, fourth watch of the night. The sea is wild, verse 24, tossed with waves. The wind is contrary, but the Lord Jesus walks on the water. Here's Job 9 and 8. Job 9 and 8 says this, He treadeth upon the waves of the sea. The Septuagint version says he walketh on the sea as on a pavement. And if you look at that commentary, Jameson Fawcett Brown, they'll tell you that the Egyptian hieroglyphic for impossibility, how they showed it, how they signified it, was by depicting a man walking on the waves. As far as they were concerned, that was a picture of impossibility. Impossible for a man to do that, but this man did that. This man walks on the water. This man walks on the storm-tossed water. And I've often passed on the quote that the Lord Jesus made the cause of their anxiety the platform for his feet. He made the cause of their anxiety the platform for his feet. He's superior to, he's supreme over every situation in life. But then look at verse 26. And when the disciples saw him walking on the sea, they, and we might expect to read, they were assured, but no, not assurance, rather agitation. They were troubled, saying, it is a spirit. And they cried out for fear. Now look at verse 27. A storm, a storm was raging around them, and the Saviour had allowed it to rage. But now a storm is raging within them. And immediately, straightway, he speaks unto them, Be of good cheer, it is I, be not afraid. 
They had said, verse 26, it is a spirit. He now says, it is I. They had said it, and that caused them concern. He now says it, and it was to cause them comfort. It is I, literally, I am. I am a revelation. It should have been a reminder of his deity. And so we have his presence with them. Jesus went unto them. Jesus went unto them, and prophecy was fulfilled. Remember Isaiah 43, when thou passest through the waters, I will be with thee. Jesus went unto them, and pity was felt. Here's J.C. Ryle. There are thoughts of comfort here for all true believers. We are never beyond the reach of his care. He may not come to our aid at the time we like best, but he will never allow us utterly to fail. He that walked upon the water never changes. He will always come at the right time to uphold his people. And so do you see where we are in this story? The storm is still raging. But he wants, in the storm, his disciples to smile. Be of good cheer. Be not afraid. And at the centre of those two statements, I am. I am he. I am here. I am with you. You feared that I was coming to harm you. You've now found I have come to help you. And so in this story, we've got his purpose for them. We've got his pathway to them. We've got his presence with them. And then we've got his perception by them. Verse 33, of a truth, thou art the son of God. And so their experience in the waves, their experience in the wind, led to worship. Matthew 14, the presence of the succorer. He was there to succor them in their time of trial. And then from the sea to the mountain, from Matthew 14 to Matthew 17, and we come now to the mountain of transfiguration. It's interesting that as you're reading this account, we have the transfiguration of Christ and there's no record of any fear. And then we've got the revelation of Moses in Elijah verse 3, and again no record of any fear. But then we have the proclamation of God, verse 5. This is my beloved son, in whom I am well pleased. Hear ye him, verse 6. And when the disciples heard it, they fell on their face and were afraid. The cloud, the bright cloud, the glory cloud, the Shekinah cloud, the cry, the voice of God, the commendation, and they are struck by fear. And so we come to the end of verse 6, and we say to ourselves, what's going to happen next? What will happen next? Look at verse 7. And Jesus came. And Jesus came. These disciples benefited from the walk of Christ. He came to them. These disciples were blessed by the the work of Christ. They felt his touch. These disciples were built up by the words of Christ. They heard his voice. Arise, be not afraid. Says the apostle to Timothy, there is one God and one mediator, one go-between, one day's man between God and men. The man Christ Jesus. Says the poet, listen to these words. Till God in human flesh I see. My thoughts no comfort find. The holy, just and sacred three are terrors to my mind. But if Emmanuel's face appears, my hope, my joy begins. His name forbids my slavish fear. His grace removes my sins. Here's Spurgeon. He says, it was the hand of a man that touched the apostles. It was the voice of a man who said to them, Arise, be not afraid. 
Here Spurgeon again, the touch of the manhood is more reassuring to poor flesh and blood than the blaze of the Godhead. The voice from heaven casts down, but the word from Jesus is arise. The Father's voice made them so afraid, but Jesus says, be not afraid. Says Spurgeon, glorious God, how much we bless thee for the mediator. Verse 8, they lifted their eyes. They saw no man save Jesus only. Others removed. Jesus remained. What if this verse, what verse 8 had said, they saw no man full stop? Or what if the verse had said, they saw no man save Moses only? Or no man save Elijah only? Or even they saw no man save Jesus and Moses and Elijah only? But how much better, how infinitely better, they saw no man save Jesus only? This one man was all they saw and this one man was all they needed needed that day and needed every subsequent day what does the hymn writer say what though clouds are hovering over me and I seem to walk alone longing mid my cares and crosses for the joys that now are flowing if I'm Jesus, Jesus only then my sky will have a gem he's the sun of brightest splendour and the star of Bethlehem what though all my earthly journey Bringeth not but weary hours, and in grasping for life's roses, thorns I find instead of flowers, if I've Jesus, Jesus only. I possess a cluster rare, he's the lily of the valley, and the rose of Sharon Fair. Matthew 17, the preeminence of the Saviour, or the permanence of the Saviour, or let's call it the pity of the Saviour. He touched them and said, Arise. And then from Matthew 17 to Matthew 28. The great resurrection chapter. It's interesting that those who watched the sepulchre, the keepers, were marked by fear. And yet there's never a message for them. And then the women are marked by fear, but there's a message for them. Says the angel, verse 5, fear not, he's not here, he is risen, come see the place where the Lord lay. Verse 8, they depart from the sepulchre with fear and great joy. So they still have fear, but fear is now mixed with great joy. And then look at verse 9. As they went to tell his disciples, behold, take note, observe carefully, Jesus met them. See what he accepts. Verse 9, he accepts worship, for worship is, is due. And see what he announces. He says, all hail. He says, rejoice. Rejoice and be not afraid. Says one writer, thought this was interesting Jesus bids them part with one of their emotions but not the other he wants them to lose their fear but he wants them to keep to increase their joy be not afraid be not afraid what does the hymn writer say lo Jesus meets us risen from the tomb lovingly he greets us scatters fear and gloom let the church with gladness hymns of triumph sing for her Lord now liveth death has lost its sting. Remember Hebrews 2 that through death he might destroy him that had the power of death, that is the devil and deliver those who through fear of death were all their lifetime subject to bondage. Says Matthew Henry, Christ rose from the dead to silence his people's fears and there is enough in that to silence them. Matthew 28, can we call this the perfections of the sacrifice, the perfections of the sacrifice. The price has been paid in full the, the, the work has been done to God's eternal satisfaction and our fears 
can be silenced. And so, so far, we've thought about seven chapters in the Gospels that contain the fear nuts of Christ. Luke 5, Mark 5, Matthew 10, Luke 12, Matthew 14, Matthew 17, Matthew 28. I, I like my sermons in sevens, but on this occasion we need to continue, for this ministry continues, the ministry of Christ continues, and so we go to Acts 18, and then we'll go to Revelation 1. Acts 18, an appearance to Paul. Revelation 1, an appearance to John. Acts 18, the setting is Corinth. There has been rejection of Paul's message. Then there has been reception of Paul's message. A man living near the synagogue has been saved, verse 7. And then a man who leads at the synagogue has been saved, the chief ruler, verse 8. Verse 8, many of the Corinthians hearing believed and were baptised. And preachers have often pointed out the significant order in that verse. Hearing, believing, baptised. But but look at the strange order of these verses. Not the significant order in one verse, but the strange order of these verses. Verse 9, then spake the Lord to Paul. Now, you know, if the Lord was going to speak, this is amazing, is it not, that the Lord Jesus speaks to Paul. But if the Lord Jesus is going to speak to Paul, we might have expected it sooner. We might have expected it at the centre of verse 6. But instead we get it at the commencement of verse 9. Be not afraid, but speak. To us it would be strange because Paul has just seen some success. But... Is it not the case that against a background of some success is often the precise point of weakness? Remember Elijah, 1 Kings 18, fearless before the prophets, 1 Kings 19, fleeing from the queen. And so it's not strange at all. And then we have verse 9, be not afraid but speak, hold not thy peace. And then look at verse 10, three precious promises. His presence, I am with thee. That can be translated, I myself am with thee. Interesting that earlier up the chapter, he had Aquila and Priscilla with him. And that was good. Interesting that further up the chapter, he now has Silas and Timothy with him. And that's good. But to have the assurance of the company of Christ, surely so much better. His presence. And then his protection. No man shall set on thee to hurt thee. And then we have his people. I have much people in this city. What do you make of that? I've heard the suggestion that these are people who were already saved, but people who were simply unknown to Paul. But I don't think so. I think these are people who would assuredly be saved. Assuredly be saved. You see, Paul looks around. And as he looks around Corinth, he sees iniquity. He he sees immorality. And then Paul looks within and he sees inadequacy and insufficiency. But the Lord says, much people. We would have looked at Corinth and we would have been tempted to say, little prospect for much success here. We would have been tempted to say, more fertile ground surely elsewhere. But the Lord says, much people. Remember 1 Corinthians 6, we've got that list of sinners who cannot inherit the kingdom of God. That list of awful works. And then we have these amazing words. And such were some of you, but ye are washed, sanctified justified. The preaching of the cross, the power of the gospel, the power of God himself. Here's Matthew Henry. In this heap 
that seems to be all chaff, there is wheat. In this ore that seems to be all dross, there is gold. Says Matthew Henry, let us not despair concerning any place. When even in Corinth, Christ had much people. Paul had entered Corinth alone. When he came to Corinth, often been pointed out, there was in Corinth a Jewish synagogue. There was in Corinth a pagan temple. But when at length he leaves, he leaves behind a company of Christians. And there's something thrilling, is there not, about those words in 1 Corinthians 1. The church of God, which is at Corinth. Fear not. Much people in this city, Acts 18, the prospect of success. The prospect of success. And then finally, Revelation chapter 1. If you're allowed to compile a list of great chapters in the Bible, then Revelation 1 would be in that list. Look at Revelation 1. Note note the illuminating introduction. The first five words. It is the revelation, the manifestation, the unveiling of Jesus Christ. Then notice the, the beautiful benediction. Verse 3. Blessed is he that readeth and they that hear. Note the, the sublime salutation. Verse 4. Grace and peace. Is it not touching? That in this book, in this book to the unbelieving world, there would be government, but to the believers, grace. In this book to the unbelieving world, there would be conflict, but to the believers, there is peace. And then note the appreciative adoration unto him. End of verse 5. Unto him that loved us. Unto him that loveth us and washed us from our sins in his own blood and made us a kingdom of priests, glory and dominion. Note verse 7. A powerful prediction. Behold, he cometh. Behold, he is coming. It's as if he's on his way already. Then note the, 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 the divine declaration, verse 8. Alpha, omega. Beginning, ending. The Lord, the Almighty. Note verse 9, verse 10, the servant situation in two spheres at the one time, in the isle that is called Patmos, in the spirit on the Lord's day. Then note verse 10, the important intervention, a great voice, as of a trumpet. John sees verse 12, candlesticks. John sees verse 13, Christ himself. In the midst, centre stage, the focus, the focal point of all attention. And then, as you know, John describes his garments, his head, his hair, his eyes, his feet, his voice, his hand, his mouth, his countenance. And so you can note the majestic manifestation. And then, getting to our text, note the reverential reaction. When I saw him, verse 17, I fell at his feet as dead. This is John who previously had leaned on Jesus' breast. This is John, a friend of Christ. But there is no familiarity here. He falls at his feet as dead. But then note the affectionate action. He laid his right hand upon me. And then note this comforting communication. Fear not. Christ's final fear not in Scripture. You know, don't you, that in chapters 2 and 3... Christ will bring a ministry to the seven churches. And on each occasion it's a ministry of himself. Whatever the need, no matter the need, Christ had the answer and the answer was Christ. And so we get that to the churches and we get that to John, this individual Christian. A presentation 
by Christ of himself, a sevenfold presentation of himself. And so the Lord Jesus says at the end of verse 17, I am, I am. And how often John had written those words in his gospel. I am, and on each occasion, a declaration of Christ's deity. And here's another one. I am the first and the last. I am the commencement. I am the conclusion. Christ's eternality, from everlasting to everlasting, he is God. I am he that liveth. He is life. He gives life. He sustains life. I am he that liveth. I became dead. And is it not touching to think that the hand that John felt upon him bore the marks of the nail? I became dead. He had entered death's dark domain. And it was even the death of the cross. I became dead. And behold, I am alive forevermore to the ages of the ages. And the Lord Jesus continues. And have the keys of hell and of death. Isaac Ewan wrote, A stranger journeyed through this weary land, tasted the common fare and paid the fee, unlocked the doors of death with pierced hand and kept the key. And kept the key. It says, Christ, all that I am, my deity, my eternality, my victory, my authority, all that I am is available for you, John. He says, fear not life, don't fear life, for I am the first and the last. Fear not death, for I became dead, and behold, I am alive forevermore. John, you won't have to cross Jordan alone. And more than that, when you come to the river, you will cross that river on dry land. Fear not life, John. Fear not death, John. Fear not eternity, John. For the keys of hell and death are by my side. Death may have claims over the physical, the body. Hell may have claims over the spiritual, the soul. But I have the keys to them both. Put yourself in John's position. What a comfort to John to hear these words. John the prisoner in Patmos, feeling separation, facing tribulation. And what a comfort to so many since to hear these words. Faced with all the uncertainties of life and death. That Christ is in complete control. Revelation 1. The preeminence of the Son. John 7. What was it that people said? Never man spake like this man. What did the hymn writer say? Beautiful words of Jesus spoken so long ago. That's true about all that he spoke. That's true about all his words. And can I suggest that that is particularly true. That is especially the case with these words. That have been before us tonight. Fear not. Be not afraid. In a variety of scriptures. Addressed a variety of saints. Saints in a variety of situations. But can I suggest. Can I submit. That each of us. Are here somewhere. Each of us are here somewhere. And so we've got the fear nots of Christ. Luke 5. Henceforth. Thou shalt catch men, the privilege of service. Mark 5 to Jairus, only believe the profit, the profitability of supplication, of coming before him in prayer. Matthew 10, enough for the disciple that he be as his master, the pattern for service, for, for suffering. Matthew 10 again, them which are able, but they're only able to kill the body, the powerlessness of sinners. Matthew 10, more value than many sparrows, the preciousness of saints. 
Luke 12, fear not little flock, the purposes of the sovereign, to give you the kingdom. Matthew 14, be of good cheer, it is I, be not afraid, the presence of the succourer in the storms of life. Matthew 17, Jesus came and touched them, the pity of the succourer, the the, the pity of the saviour. Arise, be not afraid. Matthew 28, the empty tomb, the risen Christ, the perfections of the sacrifice, a work done to God's complete eternal satisfaction. Fear not. Acts 18, much people in the city, the prospect of success. And then finally, Revelation 1, I am the first and the last. He that liveth became dead, alive forevermore, the keys of hell. And the keys of death, the preeminence of the sun. Eleven different texts, but one delightful truth fear not. Shall we pray? Our Father, we do thank thee for thy Son, the Lord Jesus. We thank thee for his coming into the world. We thank thee for his coming to these various individuals in their different situations. And we thank thee for this common theme. We thank thee for this common message. We thank thee for words. That in those situations he alone could speak. Be not afraid. Fear not. Our Father, thou knowest all about us. Thou knowest the circumstances. The backgrounds of our lives. Thou knowest where we are. Thou knowest how we are. And we just pray that in the storms of life. In the uncertainties of life. We might feel the nearness of the presence of thy Son. And the reality, the clarity, the certainty of his voice. Be not afraid fear not. And so we thank thee for this time. We thank thee for thy word. We thank thee for thy son, the Lord Jesus. And we give thee thanks for all these things in his name. Amen.